Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. Today, we consider the biggest bite of knowledge fruit humanity has ever taken. One way to put that bite is that a better life for each of us and a better world for all of us comes from a better way of knowing. What does that even mean, a better way of knowing? To understand that, we need to consider one of the most important philosophical insights of all time, which goes back over 2,500 years, and which finally became one of the greatest scientific discoveries of all time just last century. It remains surprising, and even a little disturbing when we think it through. That discovery is this. Knowledge depends on our way of knowing. Let that sink in for a moment. Knowledge depends on our way of knowing. We have an almost unconscious bias to think that knowledge depends on how things are, and that, for instance, science is about finding out how things actually are. And yet science itself indicates that how things are depends on how we try to know them. This discovery is central to cybernetics, quantum physics, and relativity theory. It plays a key role in ecology, biology, evolution, cognitive science, and developmental systems theory. Indeed, any developmental theory seems to need to take it into consideration. One scientist referred to this insight and the science associated with it as the biggest bite humanity has taken from the fruit of the tree of knowledge in two millennia. Again, the philosophers took that first bite roughly 2,500 years before the scientists did. It's the same bite, and when we put the science and the philosophy together, we get nothing short of a revolution. However, in a strange twist of fate, this momentous discovery has not really sunk into the culture. It's become almost stale, passé, or something dismissed as a fascination of new-agey thinkers. However, the problem we face is that we haven't really come to terms with the meaning and implications of this finding, especially as it relates to business, economics, ethics, politics, education, and even to religion and philosophy in general, which means it relates to everything in our lives, from our careers to our most intimate relationships and experiences. We can change our lives and our world for the better if we begin to get at the philosophical meaning of this discovery, which involves considering why we might suspect that our current ways of thinking and knowing need improving. And both of these things, in turn, unfold in the process of trying to practice better ways of knowing ourselves, better ways of knowing the world. When we look at the apparent problems in our lives and in the world, there are various ways of trying to get at their fundamental cause. Whether you want to be more creative and successful in your career, or you want to have better relationships with your loved ones, or you just want to feel happier, lighter, even help make the world a better place this crucial discovery becomes inescapable. And yet, it also becomes rather daunting 
because it demands a genuinely new way of thinking. And our education, the education all of us got, indeed the whole of our culture, has not really prepared us for this new kind of thinking. It goes beyond what we ordinarily refer to as thinking outside the box or innovation or anything we're used to. The multidisciplinary scientist Gregory Bateson said that the major problems in the world are the result of the difference between how nature works and the way people think. And therefore, he also said that the most important task today is to learn to think in a new way. In the new way demanded by this crucial scientific discovery. But in our current context, phrases like that, think in a new way, it can sound so empty. It sounds like an advertising slogan or a TED Talk theme or a self-help guru's motivational affirmation. How many times have we heard that old Einstein quote that a problem cannot be solved using the same thinking that created it? Let's set aside the fact that we have no direct evidence Einstein ever said that. Perhaps we like to think Einstein said it because we believe it. Maybe we even secretly long to think in a truly new and better way, and we want the authority of Einstein to give us permission to do that. But what would it really mean in practice, concretely? What does it mean to genuinely think differently, and not just think cleverly or think in ways that give us novelty or put the old wine in new bottles and boxes with nice corporate logos. We can discern a vital difference between novelty and true creativity, between information and insight, between knowledge in the usual sense and real wisdom. Bateson and our imaginary Einstein are asking for creativity, insight, and wisdom when they invite us to think in a new way. Bateson and Einstein both were intelligent and insightful scientists, sensitive to the unprecedented social and ecological challenges humanity now faces. Their suggestion was meant as a sober, perhaps even a sobering, imperative. Bateson and Einstein weren't alone in making this suggestion, and they were in line with much of the history of philosophy in the East and West. My own work as a philosopher became focused on questions related to this discovery. If knowledge depends on our way of knowing, I wanted to find out what are the best ways to think and to know, which ultimately means the most skillful and realistic ways to live and to love. We often think science is the best process for coming to know, but it turns out that way of thinking is inadequate. Because this discovery about knowledge is a discovery about systems, and systems involve interrelationships. That means the development of science depends on the development of scientists as total human beings. And it also includes the development of societies and even ecologies. And of course, we don't want to know our friends and loved ones in a purely scientific way. We already know there are limits to some pure notion of science as a way of knowing. The more we think about knowledge depending on our way of knowing, 
The more strange it can seem, it's a startling finding. And finally coming to terms with it would change a lot of things in our culture for the better, including business, politics, and all forms of education. For instance, consider education in science and technology, which is really big right now. We currently focus on teaching students science and technology. Obviously, that makes sense. But it also ignores the challenging aspects of this vitalizing discovery. Scientists and engineers, like all of us, depend on processes of knowing that are not part of the scientific method. Indeed, the scientific method is not very special at all because it only means we want to find out things for ourselves and not merely believe them. But the ways we come to know things are not always rooted fully enough in that commitment, whether we are scientists or not. After all, we have clear evidence that we don't know how to know. Not well enough, anyway. What do I mean by that? If we take our current way of knowing as a paradigm, then we can think about the ways paradigms supposedly work. A paradigm goes along until what are called anomalous data start to build up. These are things the paradigm can't quite explain. As this anomalous data builds up, it may indicate an impending paradigm shift, which in our case means a new way of thinking and knowing. Keep in mind that every educated person might believe in the paradigm up until the moment it gets overturned. The most educated and intelligent people of the late 19th century believed in the theory of ether, despite the anomalous data of not finding evidence for it. And that belief held until Einstein prompted a revolution. He did the same thing with the anomalous data known as the photoelectric effect, a phenomenon that was quite anomalous with respect to the accepted science of the time. In some ways, we still live in a Newtonian universe despite these revolutions. We haven't really incorporated, in particular, this essential insight that knowledge depends on our way of knowing. That explains in part, though perhaps not in full, why we seem to have a significant amount of anomalous data in our sciences and in our culture. For instance, in medicine, we take drugs that have all sorts of negative side effects, and we make fun of this. We joke about it when we hear about these negative side effects in TV commercials or in advertisements. What are negative side effects? Well, they are anomalous data. If we really knew the human body and mind, we would design drugs that could cure all people who needed the drug with zero negative side effects. That means our drug manufacturers should be giving us a confession. They should be saying effectively, we don't really know what's going on, but we found some sort of mechanism that seems to be part of the illness you have, and if you take this drug, it might help a little or a lot, and we're not sure what else will happen if you take it. Or if we do know what else will happen, we can't stop it, and we don't have any other solutions for you, so good luck. These anomalies are found all over the place. And keep in mind that our sciences face a replication crisis in some of their experiments, which means we aren't at all sure about a lot of our findings. 
and there may be more anomalous data than we realize. On the other hand, we have well-designed, peer-reviewed, and replicated studies that have given evidence for strange phenomena such as precognition, remote viewing, and other effects our current science tells us cannot be possible. That is, according to the dominant paradigm. Even setting aside strange findings, we're in the midst of a mass extinction, and no society that knows how to know would destroy the conditions of life. We have polluted water, polluted air, degraded soil. Soil degradation is so bad that we may only have 60 years' worth of harvests left. 60 harvests. Does it sound like we really know how to live in this world? We have increasing rates of cancer and addictions of various kinds, and we are seeing an epidemic of loneliness. Loneliness is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And this is happening in the most technologically connected society in history. Given the loneliness and mass shootings, terrorism, ongoing nuclear threat, does it seem like we actually know how to live together, how to communicate, how to be happy and peaceful? If we knew how to know with genuine skill, we wouldn't see so many negative side effects in science, technology, politics, economics, medicine, education, ecology, and throughout the culture in general. From a certain perspective, our science, technology, and even our economic practices seem successful. But from a broader and more philosophical perspective, they're making many of us miserable and they're currently threatening the conditions of life upon which we all depend. Now, we are talking about negative side effects of our way of knowing. Not just our way of knowing how to build nuclear missiles, but our way of knowing what we are, what this world is, what our function is here as beings in this world. Something about our way of knowing how to live, how to get around, how to eat, how to create meaning. Something about this is rather seriously wrong. It's what philosophers would call a crisis in knowing. The fancy term is an epistemological crisis. In ancient Greece, Socrates was famous for wanting to find out how we can know things rather than merely believing them. And we all want that. We all want to know, really, who am I? What is my purpose in this life? How can I love this person? How do I solve this problem I'm dealing with in the work I do or in the world I live in? But knowing what we are and knowing what the world is depends on our way of going about that. And it's determined then in large part by cultural features that we don't necessarily think about very carefully. How can we know better? How can we improve our processes of knowing? To answer that question, I did something no philosopher has ever done, something I call a philosophical meta-analysis. 
I looked at the history of philosophy around the world, including not only Eastern and Western traditions, but also indigenous traditions. In addition, I looked at the best science, the best case studies, and phenomenological inquiries into knowing that I could find. And what I discovered is an inclusive space, a common ground of knowing that can improve education, science, medicine, the arts, business, and more. If we can understand and teach the processes for knowing that delineate this inclusive common ground, we will become better thinkers, better knowers, better friends, better citizens, and better human beings. To be clear, we are talking about something philosophical, not a bag of tricks. And in fact, we are talking about more coherent ways of knowing that already underlie our current ways of knowing, which are less coherent. What we have to learn to do is activate or enter into these better ways of knowing and leave behind the incoherencies of our current ways of thinking that generate the negative side effects we don't want. To give you a sense of what I mean by activating or entering into a better way of knowing, consider a kind of analogy in music. Every good musician can play competently. They know how to make music. They can reliably pick up their instrument and make music worth hearing. But all good musicians know the difference between playing competently and entering a mysterious space in which they transcend their ordinary mind and the music comes alive in a more compelling, almost miraculous way. Now, in such a case, the musician themselves might later hear a recording of that performance and say, Wow, how did I ever do that? In fact, they know they did not do that music. Somehow, the music played itself as if by an act of grace. And yet, perhaps, paradoxically, in relation to our innate sense of self, the musician feels more alive than ever at a time like that. They feel most empowered, most authentic in those moments when their ordinary sense of self and their habits of knowledge and control have been forgotten and something else moves through them. Similarly, a painter knows what it's like to visit this same space of inspiration. And when they do, in some sense, the painting paints itself. An artist must not only visit this space of inspiration in order for the art to really flow, but they have to find ways of keeping the smaller parts of their psyche in balance. Because the ego tries to take control of the process, and this can derail the flow of inspiration. And then the artist would fall back into making the painting from a more narrow place. A philosopher's job is to facilitate entrance into this space of inspiration, as well as facilitating ongoing presence in that space as a way of life. This is the space of a better way of knowing. That puts it conservatively. It's the space of magic, the space where the impossible can actually happen 
the scientist relies on it as much as the artist. And this is indeed part of why better ways of knowing can come from a collaboration between art and science. Indeed, we all need this space, and philosophy helps us enter it, whether we are entrepreneurs, dancers, teachers, mechanics, engineers, mothers, designers, or cooks. Better ways of knowing, no matter what kind, arise from the same basic space of inspiration, a space we hold in common, which makes it a common ground for a healthy culture and a diverse culture, because this is a space of many ways of knowing. This is not a reified space. We can't point to it, and there's no formula or recipe for entering it. There are only practices and insights cultivated in the philosophical and spiritual traditions of the world, and they help us bring this space to realization. All cultures have depended on this space of inspiration, and some of them have invested considerable resources in the cultivation of practices that facilitate entrance into it. The dominant culture of the West, by contrast, is somewhat unique in marginalizing practices like this. The West has relied kind of on a willy-nilly entrance into this space of inspiration. Many people cannot enter it at all, a few can enter it with some reliability, but almost no one has learned to dwell there for any length of time in a philosophically coherent way. And this has consequently produced some rather narrow theories and practices that bring about significant negative side effects, like mass pollution, the threat of climate collapse, and global conflict. Only more skillful entrance and abiding in this space can resolve the complex problems that now confront us. We could call this space our original mind, the source of all genuinely original thinking, as opposed to mere novelty, the stuff we call thinking outside the box. Entrance into original mind relies on the synchronization of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. That might sound cumbersome and strange, but we need precision if we want to shift our own and the larger culture's way of knowing. And these five dimensions have precise meanings that translate into concrete and pragmatic qualities of practice. Wisdom-based coaching goes into this in great detail. Suffice it to say, a better way of knowing will not truly help us if it doesn't arise as a kind of awakening something that positively transforms our whole embodiment. Nietzsche captured a core aspect of any skillful and inspired way of knowing when he asked this question, to what extent can truth endure incorporation? He meant, can we really embody the truth? Or we could put it this way, to what extent are humans capable of actually knowing better. To find out, we have to become more awake and aware, more graceful, more fluid, more joyful, more artistic and scientific in our way of thinking, speaking, and acting in the world, in our way of relating to ourselves and others, in our way of touching and being touched, speaking, 
and listening, thinking with life-promoting vision. And now Nietzsche's question becomes even more urgent, because we can see that, especially for a planet of almost 8 billion human beings, we also have to ask a related question. To what extent can we endure? To what extent can life as we know it endure if we fail to better incorporate truth? This is not a matter of political or philosophical absolutes, but a question of the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our whole way of life, which we can never untangle from our way of knowing. Philosophy has to do with knowing better by living better, and living better by knowing better. Philosophy, and what we call spirituality, teach us the altogether shift into better ways of knowing. It's an altogether thing, and this altogether shift liberates us into our fullest capacity to cultivate the whole of life onward. Science, art, business, and politics, like all human endeavors, must be in service to life, not in service to any typical human agenda. And philosophy helps all of us take up that fundamental act of service. What do you think? Over the next few days, you might inquire into things that seem to change depending on your way of knowing them. Can you think of anything like that? Obviously, an electron appears as a particle when we know it one way, and as a completely different entity, a wave, when we know it another way. A bunch of electrons may appear as particles, waves, or sparks. But how does this principle work in your daily life? And what would it mean to shift your way of knowing yourself and your world? If you have reflections or questions about today's episode, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future episode. Until then, this is Nikos Patadakis, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.